Hi, dance friends. We're starting out this week with a pop quiz. So this past week, CBS announced what they'd be airing in place of the Tony Awards. And that led Broadway star Patty Murin to tweet the following. Not a retrospective of past great Tony performances and speeches and moments, or something highlighting the amazing work that people in theater do for their community, or literally anything other than this. So what will be airing during that Tony spot? What prompted Murin's kind of perfect rant? The answer in this episode of the Dance Edit Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit Magazine, and in today's episode, we'll be touching on some of the week's dance headlines as usual, imagining what socially distanced dance performances might actually look like, hearing from quantum ballerina Merritt Moore about her social dis dancing with a D life, and discussing creative approaches to beloved but problematic works of musical theater. Um, first, though, just a reminder, if you haven't yet to, of course, rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred listening platform is, and then to follow and also talk to us on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit. Um, you guys have been sending us some great and refreshingly non-pandemic related suggestions for podcast discussion topics, so we promise we'll get to those in the, the near future. Um so now, on to our first segment, which is a quick sauté through this week's dance headlines. So more big cancellations happening, wave, I don't know, 15 of that mm. kind of news, but also some some virtual programming to soothe that pain a little bit. So Courtney, you want to start us off? All right. So Disney Theatrical announced that Frozen has given its last Broadway performance, uh, citing the economic strain caused by the Great White Way's current closure. And with Broadway dark for the foreseeable future, it's likely that this won't be the last musical we see closed by the pandemic. Yeah, because if Disney can't make it, who's making it? Don't think uh. about that too hard. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Ah. And um, in more sad news, um, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, which is the summer home of New York City Ballet, canceled its classical season for the first time since 1966. And City Ballet had been slated for seven performances in four programs, including Swan Lake. Um, also, Vail Dance Festival announced the cancellation of its 2020 edition, which was scheduled to kick off July 30th. Upside, uh, Damien Wotzel says they'll be presenting a digital festival featuring memorable performances from previous years, among other offerings to be announced. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the digital festival. Uh, mayors from 22 cities nationwide sent a letter to Congress asking for arts funding to be included in the next relief package. Please keep going with the advocacy. Um, and Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts announced a virtual dance week hosted on the Lincoln Center at Home site. It's going to kick off on May 30th with a stream of a ballet Hispanico double bill. Ends June 4th with Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. And in between is an absolute treasure trove of vintage ABT and City Ballet performances. I have to say, we discussed this last week, how hard it is to get ourselves to watch a lot of the digital dance content out there. But those archival ballet pieces mm. specifically 
like Gelsey and Misha in Theme and Variations, Patty McBride as Capelli. Like, how did they know that I needed those things? I mean, thank you. <laughs> um, so let's segue here into our next segment, because obviously we miss live performance so much. Um, two stories from this past week. Imagine what will actually happen on that long-awaited day when live dance performance becomes a possibility again. So given that social distancing is likely to be part of our lives in some form or another well into the foreseeable future, what will a night at the theater look like in that foreseeable, contradiction in terms, future? Um, So first, a a Vulture article went really deep into how it might feel from the audience's perspective. So the Vulture article discussed the need for invention and flexibility in the theater to thrive amidst COVID. Um, And it also mentioned several of the challenges involved. For example, that very sense of creativity required for success could potentially backfire by drawing crowds, which could, could be unsafe. Yeah. The better your innovative production is, the more people want to see it. Suddenly, it's a health hazard. Well, and it's super interesting that the author kind of referenced like the toolkit and the mindset that are required to stage like a site-specific work or an immersive work and how that those things are going to be essential uh, just because when you think of big old packed theaters that right now seems like a bit of a landmine. Uh, so how do these limitations foster creativity and how can they become in their own ways choreographic prompts? Right. And I'm curious to know um, how the first audience members to return to the theater will actually feel about the experience. How many will feel anxious? How many will feel uh, excited because they're finally getting to see a live indoor performance again? Um, And the article mentions um, the potential for it to kind of emphasize the melancholy weirdness, I think is how they put it. Um, Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you kind of put these important changes into place without it having a negative effect on attendees? Mm-hmm. Well, the logistics, I think, of the performance experience, um, if we're talking about traditional theaters, it's going to take a complete rethinking. And then in terms of if you want to do site specific, if you want to do immersive, that is a whole other can of worms. Uh, so I think it's questions being asked on every level of from how the audience enters the space to how the audience exits the space. I think there are key questions to be asked. Um, Going back to the idea of social distancing as a creative constraint that might generate some interesting things, I loved that they talked to Annie B. Parson, who's been thinking Mm. about this stuff, who's thinking about Mm. it before the pandemic. And she said that she loves the beauty of the six foot distance, like the logistics of maintaining that could sort of generate some really interesting ideas. That sounds beautiful and optimistic and very Annie B. Um, But then they also talked to Kyle Abraham who was slightly less sunny about it all. Well, and as he is wont to do, I think he kept it real. Um, yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, there's only so much work he can do without being in the space with his dancers. And this is fascinating coming from Kyle specifically because his company um, has functioned actually quite well pre-pandemic with its artistic director on one coast, the dancers on another coast, and they would come together at residencies to create stuff. But a lot of the time we're relying on the technology that we're all now using to keep in contact with each other and so if kyle is saying i don't know how long this can keep up i think that is a very real reality check that we're getting but i will say i did also appreciate his point that like 
we're all going to be so much more aware of touch as humans after Mm -hmm. this. And so how much more charged contact is going to become. And so it makes me wonder, as an audience member, how is the way that I see dance going to be changed? And how, as a society, the way we see dance, how is that going to collectively be changed by this? Yeah. Um, Speaking of the the visceral reality of touch, so... Second part of this discussion, recently there have been a few think pieces like this one that focus on how new works of performance art might look and how we'll protect the people watching them. Essentially, it's all been written from the audience's perspective, which you know is understandable in a lot of ways since you know it's going to be critical to get audiences on board for performances to bring in that sustainable amount of ticket revenue. Um, and also the critics who sit in the audience are the people doing most of the writing. But The dance enthusiast recently published this Critiker essay by David Gray, the former executive director of the Pennsylvania Ballet and American Repertory Ballet. The title is literally, Screw the Audience. And (laughs) his point is, we have to think just as hard. We have to think harder about how to protect the dancers on stage and the backstage workers involved in live performances, the people doing all of this physical touching as, I mean, mandated by their jobs. Yeah, exactly. And he, one of his points is so many articles are being written about, well, how will audiences be comfortable going forward and not accounting for, well, hey, backstage spaces are even more cramped, largely underground, (laughs) not, not great ventilation. And even if you could manage getting that kind of space between the performers when they're backstage and between the crew members when they're backstage... By definition, the way that dancers rehearse and perform, particularly for, say, classical ballets, um, is just not conducive to social distancing. Um, So while we're talking about, oh, getting back to the theater with social distancing in place, well, what are we saying then to the people who are backstage who are making the magic happen? Um, I I really hope that um, a robust testing regimen can be in place because... Um, it's just going to be critical. And one thing I'm kind of concerned about is um, I'm kind of worried that there's going to be or that there could be a combination of thought patterns that kind of seem common in the dance world and just among people in general um, that could maybe be detrimental to safely um, safely returning long term. Um, for example, in dance culture, there's this sense of almost relentless positivity that also ties into that value of resilience that we've talked about in previous episodes. And when you combine that with the pressure to survive that company leaders are facing, the existing stigma against illness and injury among dancers, and just the general human inclination toward normalcy bias, um, people you know believing the threat might be over when it's not or underestimating the risks, um, the situation could get much worse. So I think it's so important that um, dance companies are able to consult with public health professionals and safely returning and making sure everyone backstage can be safe. Yeah, thinking carefully and creatively about the people on all sides of this equation. Um, Okay, so moving on to our next segment, we have the next installment in our social disc dancing with a D series in which we ask artists from different corners of the dance world to leave us little voice memos just describing how they're coping with life right now. Um, This week, we have the fabulous Dr. Merritt Moore, who's also known as the Quantum Ballerina, um, because not only has she danced professionally with English National Ballet and Norwegian National Ballet, but she also has a degree in physics from Harvard and a PhD in atomic and laser physics from Oxford. Casual. No big deal. Yeah. 
Um, she's particularly well qualified, actually, to give advice about at-home training, as you'll hear. And she also has perhaps the most fascinating quarantine side project ever. Um, so here she is. Hello, Dance Edit listeners. Um, my name is Merritt, and I am speaking to you guys from my room in London, where we're currently in lockdown. You know, obviously now as dancers, it is such a difficult time. Our entire routines have been tossed upside down. But I would like to offer that, you know, this is, I think, perhaps a silver lining and that it is possible even in the confines of a very small space, whether it be bedroom or a kitchen counter, um, that, you know, as dancers, all of us, we can be better dancers at the end of this. And I say this out of experience of having had to train on my own in a little dorm room for five years when I was doing my PhD at Oxford. Like it was so far away to get to a dance class. There was no dance classes at Oxford. London was a two hour commute. And so I just, during my PhD, I I did not have time for a four hour commute and then an hour and a half um, dance class. So what I ended up having to do was train on my own. And I would give myself, um, I would watch the World Ballet Day classes. And so in particular, I would take the Royal Ballet um, class. I think it's like 2014, Olga Vrenov. There's like a penny on the floor. Like I took that class so many times from my, uh, in my dorm, like hanging on the, the wardrobe, like swinging, um, door and then I would put on the sneakers and go through Kichu variation like eight times in a row and you know if it's sunny like it's now summer I recommend outside on the grass Uh, sometimes this would have to be in the winter at Oxford so I I found a basketball court I mean maybe you could do it in your room but that cardio of like going through the jumps and being in the sneakers and you know it's hard work to be really on top of yourself and critique yourself. But I think it becomes us, makes us much wiser dancers in the process. There was so much that I gained from that. And then four months after I submitted my PhD, I was dancing on stage with Norwegian National Ballet, you know, the Swan Lakes and La Dare and Symphony and Sea. So what I, what I want to say is it's tough. It's super tough to train on our own. Like it's, I, I, I get it <laughs> for sure, but I, I would tell dancers like, don't lose hope. Yeah, it's different, but with a different routine, we can learn so much and gain so much. So, you know, we got this, we got this. Like, it'll be so cool when all of us after this lockdown be like, boom, we're actually better dancers than before. So I, you know, I juggle physics and dance and it's, you know, it's a huge time commitment for each individually, let alone both. And so now, since I finished my PhD two years ago, I've been working on projects to combine my two passions, just kind of to save time as well. And one of them, one of the projects was, I was recently artist in residence at Harvard Art Lab, and I was creating a duet with this industrial robotic arm, a human and robot. I was collaborating and still continue to collaborate with the professors and students at the Harvard University Engineering and Applied Physics Department and the Graduate School of Design in in how we choreograph and how we can enhance this uh, dance duet. Now, little did I know back in January that 
dancing with an industrial robot arm was going to be my only dance partner, like possible dance partner for a very long time due to COVID. So I am now working on getting the robot to my apartment so that I can continue choreographing and, and perhaps making this like a global effort where, you know, people can input choreography ideas from around the world. So I'm, I'm super excited. Um, yeah, if people want to collaborate, let's do it. And also just working on various projects that entail, you know, my two passions of, of physics and dance, which I guess is another silver lining to this. Now dancers have that extra time to kind of explore what their second passion is or what other passions they might want to pursue and investigate and explore. And then I think it just makes us as dancers much richer. It alleviates a lot of anxiety when we have something else to kind of distract our minds from. As parting words, I would say there is a quote that really kind of changed my life when I was younger, which is, nothing's impossible, possible just takes time. And now we have lots of time during this uh, lockdown. So it is, um, you know, a time of opportunity. Thank you so much for that, Merit. She really is the coolest. We all want to be friends with her now. Um, please follow Merit on Instagram at physicsonpoint with an E. Um, and message her if you want to collaborate on her robotics project, which sounds amazing. And if you want to know more about Merit, you can check out there is a profile on her recently in British Vogue that gets into a lot of the work that she's doing. So now we have the answer to our pop quiz from the top of the episode. After CBS announced what would be airing in place of the unfortunately postponed Tony Awards on June 7th, um, Broadway star Patty Murin tweeted this pretty sick burn. Not a retrospective of past great Tony performances and speeches and moments or something highlighting the amazing work that people do in theater, people in theater do for their community or literally anything other than this. So what's actually airing during that Tony spot? A sing-along version of Grease. For real. What? For real. <laughs> this is this is such a no one asked for this development in an already weird season, I feel. <laughs> They could literally just play like the Neil Patrick Harris opener from 2013 on a oh loop for two hours, and I it's would rather just, tune in. It's not just for gays anymore. I I wholeheartedly agree. Um, the, there's a page six roundup of Broadway celebrity responses to this, which just has some gems in it. Somebody was circulating an email with the subject line, Grease is the turd. And of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda coming in with the most appropriate Michael Jordan side-eye meme. Universal just befuddlement. Just anything else. Literally yeah. anything else, guys. Come on. Yeah. So we're mixing things up a bit this week by not ending the episode with the quiz answer, but instead using it as a segue into another conversation we wanted to have because the CBS executives could not have been shown less imagination in choosing their replacement for the Tony's broadcast. But in a different corner of the musical theater world, some very thoughtful artists are coming up with deeply imaginative ways to bring golden age musicals into the 21st century. Yeah, so Dance Magazine just ran a, a story with Lear de Bessonet, who, one, has the best name ever, uh, two, <laughs> uh, was recently named the next artistic director of New York City Center's Encores performance series, which essentially restages classic musicals. Um, and essentially what she talked about a lot was what, 
what musicals do we decide to restage? Why do we decide to restage them? And a lot of what she was getting at uh, really has to do with asking, you know, what what do you want to engage with this with this piece? What were what were the creators saying? What do you, as an artist in the twenty first century, want to say about it? And how do you bring those two things together? Being really clear eyed about who's going to be at the front of the room, maybe who was who wasn't but should have been in the original production, and who can you bring to it now? Uh, they were supposed to be doing a staging of Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, which has since been postponed due to the pandemic, which is actually a very inherently problematic piece. And what's problematic is that um, Thoroughly Modern Millie centers on a young Caucasian woman from the Midwest in 1922 who moves to New York City, checks into a hotel operated by a woman named Mrs. Mears, um, and Mrs. Mears essentially runs a human trafficking ring in China, which they refer to as white slavery in the film, which is problematic in itself. Um, and the character of Mrs. Mears was originally played by a white woman costumed um, in an effort to appear Chinese with two Asian henchmen. Um, so there, there are a lot, there are layers of problems, um, very stereotypical representation of Asians. Um, and it's definitely not something that has a place in 2020. Yeah. So Lear is not Asian. So she brought in people who could speak with authority on what the portrayal of Asians in the show might feel like to an Asian person. Um, the playwright Lauren Yi and then also Phil Chan of Final Bow for Yellowface were both advisors to the production. Um, Asian American actress Ashley Park was going to play Millie. And together, they're all trying to figure out how to work around the problematic elements in the show while maintaining the value that it still has, because there is still something vital in it, something that still feels relevant to audiences today. Absolutely. And also just, again, being clear about what the intent is. What is your intent reviving this? What in here is worth excavating? Because we've seen some revivals that have done really incredible jobs. I'm looking at you, Daniel Fish's Oklahoma. I know. I'm actually, I hope at some point we get to see, by the way, what Camille Brown came up with for the choreography for this Thoroughly Modern Millie. Because oh, right? I'm sure I'd love to genius. see that. Ugh. Anyway, thank you everyone for joining us today. We will be back next week for more discussion of all the news that's moving the dance world. Um, in the meantime, don't forget to sign up for the Daily Dance Edit email newsletter at thedanceedit.com. And keep dancing, everyone. Bye. Bye. The Dance Edit podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoin, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.